It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, you're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio. I'm Rachna Shanbog. Coming up on today's show... How do you stand out in the high-stakes world of venture capitalism? Capital is no longer a scarce resource. It's quite frankly a commodity now in this business. And I think success or failure for all of us in this industry will be a function of whether we bring something else to the table. And game companies' plans to take it to the next level. It's a bit like Netflix or Spotify for video games. But first, on the 18th of November, Boris Johnson, Jeremy Corbyn and Joe Swinson, the leaders of three British political parties, addressed the annual conference of the Confederation of British Industry, or CBI. Each of them made their case for why they would secure the brightest future for British businesses. The Conservative Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, made the case for his Brexit deal. What this deal does is it gives business complete stability and certainty. Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn refuted claims that he was anti-business. This is nonsense. It's not anti-business to be against poverty pay. And it's not anti-business to want prosperity in every part of our country. And Joe Swinson of the Liberal Democrats champions small business. Liberal Democrats are committed to helping small businesses who are the engine of our economy. That's why Liberal Democrats would scrap business rights and replace them with a commercial landowner levy. It will shift the burden from the tenant to the landlord so that we can breathe new life into our high streets. But which of them struck a chord with the assembled business leaders? Rain Newton-Smith is chief economist at the CBI and she was at the conference. Hello, Rain. Hi, Rashda. You had three party leaders speaking at an event hosted by the CBI all courting the business vote. Let's start with Boris Johnson. His announcement that he was shelving cuts to corporation tax grabbed the headlines. What is the CBI response to that pledge and to his speech more broadly? Look, I think what was great about what Boris Johnson set out is he certainly tried to have a pro-enterprise voice to his speech. And I think, yes, I think the headlines did focus on the pause in corporation tax. But I think there were some other things that were really important for businesses to hear. So I think you heard all business leaders talk about business rates. They would review that as soon as they were in power and that that would actually lead to a lower burden on business from business rates. And I think that is something that businesses are looking for because business rates is sort of holding back investment and growth around the country. I think in terms of the corporation tax, I think pausing corporation tax cuts, if that money is being used sensibly, if that's being used to fund and improve our public services, and at the same time, you have you know a package of measures that is really focused on driving business investment, I think business will welcome that. 
And Rain, what about the leader of the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn? His pitch to the CBI was that he's not anti-business. Were you won over by that? I think what Jeremy Corbyn talked about in his speech was you know, raising living standards around the UK. I think one of the points we're certainly aligned is he has a real focus on increasing skills, particularly in the move to a low carbon economy. And some of the measures that the Labour Party set out in terms of having more flexibility around the apprenticeship levy and really having a focus as well on how we retrain our heat engineers to make sure our homes are more energy efficient. That's certainly welcome. But I think the elephant in the room for some of the Labour Party policies is how that's being funded. But I think more importantly, some of the measures around renationalisation. I think the measures that were set out around renationalising parts of BT has left a lot of businesses wondering who's next. And you also heard from Liberal Democrat leader Joe Swinson, who claimed that the Lib Dems were the natural party of business. What did you think of what she had to say? Look, we want all parties to be the party of business. I think Joe Swinson set out some really interesting policies. And I think one of the ones that certainly appeals to business is the focus on adult retraining and giving individuals a skills wallet so that they can have money to spend you know, at different ages throughout their lives. I think that was really welcome. They also had an innovative idea. It was great that all party leaders were talking about how we reform business rates. The Liberal Democrats were suggesting replacing it with a land levy. That could work, but I think we have concerns about how you make the transition and how practical that would be. I think there's such immediate pressure on our high streets. It may not be the right time to bring a whole new system where it's not clear what that would deliver for business. There's a huge elephant in the room that we haven't really talked about at all, which is Brexit. Does any one of these parties offer something that businesses uh, find appealing on Brexit in particular? I think there's, you know, things that are appealing from all of them. I think in terms of what business wants from Brexit is, first of all, taking a no deal off the table. And I think as Carolyn Fairburn set out, there's this worry that you get the sort of dangerous ideologies on both sides. And the idea that we could manage a no deal is just not something that businesses think would be a good thing for our our country. And yes, we've avoided a no deal back at the end of October, but there's still a chance that we could face a no deal next autumn. And business doesn't want to be marched back up that hill. And so whoever comes into government would really need to be clear that they wouldn't be boxed into false deadlines and that they would negotiate the best possible deal for the UK economy and they would take the time that it takes to deliver that. Thanks very much, Rain. Thank you, Rashna. And also at the event was The Economist's Britain business editor, Tamsin Booth. Hello, Tamsin. Hello, Rachna. What was the mood in the room? The mood was really quite electric because, you know, usually these CBI conferences, they don't occur at such a crucial moment in politics, so just a few weeks before the election. And I think business people found the three speeches from Joe Swinson, Jeremy Corbyn and, and Boris Johnson, I think they obviously found them incredibly compelling. The main reaction clearly was that Joe Swinson, leader of the Liberal Democrats, just really wowed the room. And she was getting a lot of outbreaks of applause, not just because clearly she's anti-Brexit, which is a popular position with a lot of big business. It was genuinely to the way that she spoke and communicated I think Jeremy Corbyn came across as as striking a very moderate tone, making a big effort to woo business. 
you might expect that business was going to be most receptive to Boris Johnson, but of course, he hasn't really been forgiven for saying F business about the sector's concerns about a no-deal Brexit. Although to be fair, of course, he may not have been referring to companies when he said that, but to lobby groups. But still, it didn't leave a great impression. And I think there's a general sense among business leaders that he does lack some seriousness but, you know, he made some great jokes, such as the nightmare in Downing Street on Friday the 13th, which seemed to amuse everyone. So we've just heard from Rain Newton-Smith, who's the chief economist at the CBI, and she sounded most sceptical about Jeremy Corbyn of all of the three leaders. Was that your takeaway from the event as well? I think it's, of course, predictable that business is, and, and especially finance, is it really hostile to Labour's plans for the economy on nationalisation and many of the measures. But in a way, I think what's most interesting is that the business reaction to the various positions of Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson is actually more nuanced than you might expect. And Carolyn Fairburn, the Director General of the CBI, has really captured that, I think, when she said just a couple of days ago that extreme ideology on both left and the right is causing harm to Britain's economy. And so she explained that as being on the right, you have preference for a no-deal Brexit and for some, a zeal for kind of wholesale deregulation of the UK economy. And she said that that's really not what British firms, large or small, want. So the thing to note there is that she's not just talking about extreme ideology on the left, but also on the right, and that it's not just about um, Brexit and a no-deal Brexit, but it's about more. It's about a potential deregulation of the UK economy. And this really chimes with what I hear from business, um, both at the conference and more broadly. So a lot of business leaders think that Labour is is actually right, asking the right questions about inequality, workers' rights and pay, the role of the state and regulation, but that Labour is giving chronically um, incorrect answers, clearly. So I think that Labour at the moment not expected to win a majority. So perhaps also you have business kind of relaxing slightly about that very radical agenda. But I think that if the Conservatives under Johnson do win a, a majority, a big majority, there's still going to be quite a bit of tension with the government and not just over Brexit. Thank you, Tamsin. Thank you. And you can read more about British business and the election in the upcoming edition of The Economist. Subscribe now. Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. Next, every startup needs capital. But how do you get it? And how do you make sure that your venture is the one that becomes a success? Those are questions Scott Cooper has tried to answer. Scott is a managing partner at Andreessen Horowitz, a venture capital firm that's based in the US. In his time at Andreessen, he's seen its assets under management grow to more than $7 billion. And the firm has backed lots of famous tech unicorns from Airbnb to Slack. Now Scott's written a book titled Secrets of Sand Hill Road, Venture Capital and How to Get It. In it, he explores what it takes to grow tech companies and how to survive in a world that's dominated by venture capital. He spoke to The Economist's Buttonwood columnist, John O'Sullivan. John began by asking him to define venture capital. I think the simple way to think about it is it's actually capital to help grow a business 
quite frankly, where there is probably not other alternative forms of capital that would be available to companies. So often companies get started and they might take loans from a bank or maybe they take a little bit of money from uh, friends and family of theirs. But venture capital is a category of companies where they're incredibly risky. The likelihood of success is very low. There's hopefully a potential for a very large you know, upside if they're successful. But these companies could take 5, 10, 15 years before you kind of realize that success. And so venture capital is really very patient capital that recognizes that they're investing in probably the riskiest end of the asset class, but with the potential, hopefully, that uh, over a 5, 10, 15-year period, you can earn a very high return on that money. Okay. And venture capital has been sort of strongly associated, almost exclusively almost associated with the technology industry in uh, Silicon Valley in the area around San Francisco. And that wasn't always the case. Can you just tell us how venture capital and Silicon Valley tech have sort of grown up together in the last couple of decades? Yeah, absolutely. Venture capital really started in the US actually on the East Coast in Boston and New York. So it really kind of came out of traditional financial institutions. The big thing that happened, which kind of migrated a lot of that capital over to California and Silicon Valley was I think really two things. Number one is the presence of Stanford University as a very important kind of research university, but also as a place where professors would not only do research, but also think about practical commercial applications of their technologies. And then secondly, the other big thing that really impacted Silicon Valley was in the kind of late 40s and early 50s, when the U.S. was going through a large buildup of military industrial complex and, you know, preparation of computers and hardware and defense systems for, you know, obviously going into World War II, Silicon Valley became kind of a very central place there. And so a lot of the government money came into the region, and that really drove also a lot of the private capital around things like hardware systems and semiconductors, which is really the origin of Silicon Valley. The idea of tech enterprises now and sort of venture-backed tech enterprises, we think of Google, we think of Facebook, Uber more recently. It's actually quite a narrow version of what is technology. And Peter Thiel, a venture capitalist co-founder of PayPal, famously said, we wanted flying cars. Instead, we got 140 characters. So I wonder, is there something within the venture industry that explains this narrowness or is it broader? I mean, where's the Star Trek stuff? Why are we getting sort of enterprise computing and not flying cars jetpacks, that kind of stuff? I think there are elements of both. I think some of it, quite frankly, is just where we are in terms of the technology cycle right now. The things that everybody hears about are the big consumer-facing companies. You mentioned a bunch, Facebook, Twitter, things like Uber or Lyft. But there's a whole other segment of the business, number one, that is traditional enterprise-facing companies, so non-consumer technologies, but you know, enterprise software, enterprise infrastructure, so all of the things that obviously drive the internet and are the components of the internet, of course, most of those were all venture-backed businesses. And then I think what you're seeing now actually is probably what Peter Thiel was thinking about, which is you might call it deep tech is the way to think about it. Maybe drones are the first incarnation of Peter's flying cars, uh, and we will see those over time. So I think you are seeing that. I would just say the, the timeframes on those kind of deep tech companies are very long. And so therefore, those are probably kind of 20 plus year investments but in the meantime, you'll hear about the Facebooks and the others of the world that kind of, you know, capture the popular attention in the shorter term. OK, one of the, uh, the ways in which venture capital hopefully gets its investment back is an IPO, a public listing of a company. Now, the number of listed companies in America has dramatically decreased in the past 20 years and startups are staying private and venture backed for longer than ever. Can you give us a sense of what you think are the drivers behind that trend and what has it meant for the venture capital industry? I think a lot of this change is a function of changes in the U.S. capital markets. There were a number of things that the SEC, which is the governing authority here in the U.S. for our capital markets, did 
that increase the efficiency of the capital markets, which is a wonderful thing. The problem that that has created, though, is that for smaller cap companies, so think of that as companies that are less than a few billion dollars in market cap, they don't have the same infrastructure they used to have. So they don't have research analysts who would cover the stock from the research perspective. You don't have, you know, kind of sales and trading groups at investment banks because all the kind of, you know, economics really have accrued to the larger cap and larger volume stocks. So it's very difficult for a U.S. company to be a small cap stock. And that, I think, is the real driver for why you see companies choosing to stay private longer is when they go public, they want to be public at a scale and at a liquidity that actually makes them kind of you know, viable in the public markets. Yeah. And one of the sort of consequences of that is you have a lot of money that might have been invested directly in your company people coming in as limited partners are increasingly finding their ways directly to the companies themselves, the startups themselves. So you're, in a sense, you have greater competition as a supplier of capital from people going direct, as you say, pension funds, family offices, sovereign wealth funds, increasingly investing directly because they can't find these sorts of opportunities, relatively small but growing companies on the public markets. A concern about that is valuations becoming inflated as a consequence. Could you give us a sense of how concerned we should be about that? First of all, you're right about the trend, which is we do see more direct investment coming from kind of large institutional investors. In terms of valuations as a whole, though, there's no question that if you look over the last 10 to 15 years, nominal valuations have risen you know, in this market, as they have, quite frankly, in other asset classes, whether you look at public assets or you know, fixed income or other areas. The thing that at least gives us confidence about kind of where the valuation environment is right now is notwithstanding this nominal increase, the market size opportunity and the kind of potential growth prospects for these businesses is just materially different than it was, you know, even 10 or 15 years ago. You know, a simple way to think about this is if you think about the size of kind of the global internet population back in the late 90s, you had about 150 million kind of global users on the internet. So that was kind of the full market size potential for any of the companies that were trying to kind of offer internet-based services to people. Today, particularly because of the advent of the, of the you know, kind of mobile phone, you have something like four and a half billion people globally who now have effectively ubiquitous access to you know, online applications. And so in a market like that, that doesn't mean every company will succeed, but it does mean that when companies succeed on a global scale, they can achieve a size that people didn't anticipate before. I wonder if we could just finish on a note trying to cast things forward and think about how you see the venture capital industry developing in the next 10 years. If you look at a lot of the names that you know about in this industry, Many of those are the same names, quite frankly, that started here in the early 1970s and, you know, kind of became successful. And therefore, you see this very interesting phenomenon in this business uh, that the academics call persistence, which is this idea that if you have a good fund in one vintage, you're highly likely to have a good fund in the next vintage. And I think your explanation for that is probably right, which is it's kind of this positive signaling, this kind of network effect effectively that you generate. So I think that will be continue to be important over time. I do believe, obviously, also that providing value outside of capital is going to be important over the next 10 years. The other things I think we will see in this industry over a 10-year period, I think we will see many more secondary markets develop in the private markets, meaning that I think you will see more venture capitalists and other early-stage investors potentially exiting their stocks even before an IPO, just recognizing the liquidity constraints that many of these funds have. So I think those are some of the big trends we'll see as this industry continues to develop. Scott Cooper, thanks for joining us today on Money Talks. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And John's also written a column about the venture capitalists of Silicon Valley. You can find this on The Economist website. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And finally, last week on Money Talks, we heard about the battle of the streaming wars in TV and film with the launch of Disney+. Now, Google hopes to do the same in video games with the launch of its new cloud gaming service called Google Stadia. The developments in video game streaming could revolutionise the $150 billion industry. And it may signal a move away from traditional games consoles, like PlayStation or Xbox, much like the shift from DVDs to Netflix. Over 20 games will be available to stream, including Red Dead Redemption 2 and Football Manager 2020. But who wins and loses from the move towards cloud-based gaming? Tim Cross is The Economist technology editor. Hi, Tim. Hi, Rachel. So, Tim, for the non-aficionados among us, could you explain what cloud gaming actually is? So the quick answer is it's a bit like Netflix or Spotify for video games. Uh, and the slightly more detailed answer is that, you know, before Netflix came along, if you wanted to watch a DVD, you needed a dedicated DVD player, a machine that you know, sits in your living room and plays DVDs for you. And if you wanted to listen to music, you needed a hi-fi. And Spotify, Netflix and companies like that replaced that with the ability to just stream video or stream audio off the Internet and it could come out of any speaker onto any screen in your house. Cloud gaming is basically the same idea. So rather than having a dedicated piece of hardware, you know, a powerful computer that's designed to play video games, all the hard computational work is done by some server living in a data center, you know, tens or hundreds of miles away. And the result are just piped over your internet connection and can appear on pretty much any screen, even if it's something like a, a smart television that has you know, basically no processing power of its own. You can run uh, modern advanced games without the need for a dedicated piece of hardware in your house. Now Google are hoping to press forward with the streaming of video games. What are they hoping to achieve with Google Stadia? So I think two things, really. Video games are a big part of the entertainment industry. As you said, they're $150 billion, so about roughly the same as film and much, much bigger than music. But sort of streaming has left them mostly untouched until now. And one of the problems, if you want to play particularly the kind of, you know, big-budget blockbuster video games like the ones you mentioned, is you need an expensive piece of kit to do it. So you need to buy an Xbox, you need to buy a PlayStation, or you need to buy a gaming PC, and those cost hundreds of dollars, and you can't really take them with you. What this lets you do is it lets you play video games without the need for an expensive console up front, and it means you can play them you know, on the train or in the park or really anywhere you've got an internet connection, on your smartphone, on your television. Uh, it just gets rid of the need for a sort of powerful physical console that has to live in your living room. And who else is getting involved in cloud gaming? Sony, which makes the PlayStation consoles, already has a game streaming service called PlayStation Now. There are various smaller companies uh, like Shadow who will offer something similar for PC games. But I think the battle will really heat up next year when Google will be joined by Microsoft, which makes the Xbox consoles. They're going to launch xCloud, their own version of game streaming. And it's pretty much an open secret in the industry that Amazon as well is going to jump in at some point. We don't have a name for their product, but almost everybody thinks that they are working on something and it will come out quite soon. 
You mentioned the fact that people don't have to own consoles as being one of the advantages of this shift to cloud gaming. Are there any other benefits from it? So one of the other big ones, I guess, is convenience. And if you look at the Stadia launch announcement, they talk about, you know, you're sitting at home, you're playing on your console, then you have to get the train to work so you can, you know, pause the game, go get on your train, whip out your smartphone and carry on from where you left off. If you talk to people at Microsoft, they'll say, well, look, these days people kind of expect their entertainment to follow them around, right? You can bring books with you on your Kindle, you can bring music with you with Spotify. The idea is to make this work for video games as well. So it's easier to get away with gaming at work. Exactly. What are some of the downsides? One of the downsides is it's still a bit of an open question exactly how well this will work because streaming a film or streaming a song is technically not all that difficult. So you know, internet connections, particularly if you're using a phone, you know, they drop and come back. You don't always have a good quality connection. For a film or a song, you can fix that easily by what's called buffering, where you just download, say, 30 seconds or a minute or two minutes of extra data before you need it. And you can use that to sort of paper over the gaps in the connection. With a game, that doesn't work because they're interactive. So it has to respond instantly to what you do, which means you need a constant and pretty rock-solid connection. And the other problem is that the travel time, you know, if I press a button on my controller, it has to go all the way to some data center that's potentially, you know, tens of miles away, get processed, and then the resulting, you know, bit of game footage has to come all the way back to me. And that adds several tens of milliseconds of what's called latency. And in small quantities, that's okay, and you can sort of kind of ignore it. But if your connection starts to degrade and the round trip takes longer and longer, it starts to feel like you're you know, playing a game, you're walking through treacle or something like that. So let's talk about the impact on companies. The move to streaming means that fewer people will be buying consoles. Is that game over for profits? I think it depends on how you look at it. I think the companies, if you talk to them, and, and Microsoft and Sony especially, who are in the, the console business already, will say, look, we don't see this you know, completely replacing consoles anytime soon. If you talk to them, they will see it more as an ability to expand the reach of the market. So, for instance, xCloud, Microsoft service, is in a sort of public beta test at the moment, and it's only available in a, a few Western countries. But next year, they want to expand that test to India. Now, India is a country with a GDP per capita of about $2,000, which means dropping you know, 250 bucks on a games console is just an unaffordable luxury for most people. It's also a country with half a billion internet users, almost all of whom get online via their phones. So potentially this is a big expansion of the market. You know, if, if you can capture all of those smartphone users who you know, could never afford a traditional console but now can suddenly get access to these games, then the result could just be a much bigger market and much bigger profits. Tim, thank you very much. Thanks, Rachel. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Rachna Sharnbog, and in London, this is The Economist.